Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke, where we are finishing chapter 14 with a powerful passage on discipleship. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35 is our passage this morning. Luke 14, verses 25 to 35. Let's give our attention now to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that apart from Jesus Christ, we have no hope. And so we pray now, Father, for eyes to see the glory of Christ. We pray for minds to comprehend the Word of Christ. We pray for hearts that are ready to trust the Gospel of Christ. And we pray for lives that are ready to love the body of Christ. Our only hope is the Lord Jesus. Please give us grace, God. Please keep me from error. Please open our ears to hear, to believe, and to obey what Your Word reveals. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Discipleship is not an offer that man makes to Christ. That statement comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and martyr for the faith. And it is a statement that captures the tone of our passage this morning. Discipleship, Bonhoeffer said, is not an offer that man makes to Christ. What Bonhoeffer meant is that we are not the ones who set the terms for discipleship. Saying what's required, establishing what's expected, choosing how we will obey and under what circumstances. Disciples don't define discipleship. Jesus does. Jesus, through His Gospel, calls us and Jesus, with sovereign authority, establishes what is required for those who would follow Him. Far from being an offer that we make to Christ, discipleship is a summons. 
It's an authoritative call that demands our submission. And that perspective accurately summarizes our passage this morning. Of all the things that we might say about this text, one thing is very clear. Jesus sets the terms. Jesus issues demands. Simply notice the setting that Luke establishes in verse 25. There's a great crowd following Jesus, but instead of capitalizing on the moment, Jesus speaks quite bracingly of what discipleship requires. It's almost as though Jesus is trying to weed out all of the people He knows will not stick around. He's certainly trying to get the crowd to see that discipleship requires more than popular enthusiasm. In fact, that's one of the important points to understand this text. Jesus intends to be alarming. He intends to be alarming. His aim is to get your attention, to wake you up, and to cause you to ask, am I following Jesus on His terms or on my terms? And so if we were to summarize Jesus' terms in one sentence, it would be this. Disciples must count the cost in following Jesus. That's Jesus' terms. Disciples must count the cost in following Jesus. That's the entire passage in one sentence. You must count the cost. This is a non-negotiable in Christian discipleship. Notice, for example, Jesus' repeated Use of the word cannot. It's all through the passage. Verse 26, cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, cannot be my disciple. As we're going to see, each of those verses presents a demand from the Lord, but what we need to note from the start is that those demands are non-negotiable. Absolute terms. You must follow Jesus in this way or else you cannot follow Him. You cannot be His disciple. Or take, for example, Jesus' illustrations in the middle of the passage. I'm sure you noticed them as we read verses 28 to 32. They're simple but powerful. No one builds a tower without first counting the cost. Why not? Because it's foolish to start a project you can't finish. And no king goes to war without first counting whether he can win. Why not? Because it's better to ask for peace than to get beat on the battlefield. You must count the cost. In the same way, discipleship requires that we humbly and honestly and eyes wide open count the cost. Again, we're not offering our services to Jesus. As Bonhoeffer said, Jesus is defining the terms for us. Jesus is making demands of us. And therefore, to follow Him, disciples must count the cost. From the outset then, we begin to recognize how radical Jesus is in terms of discipleship. According to Jesus, there is no halfway discipleship where you follow Jesus in the ways that you like, but not all the ways that He demands. Neither is there any such thing as cheap discipleship, where you get the benefits of Jesus, but without the costs of following Him. Jesus has no concept of such things. 
In fact, if we reduce discipleship to merely making a one-time decision, then we have ceased to follow the Bible and we are instead following something masquerading as Christianity. There's probably a whole sermon's worth of things that I could say about that. But I don't want to spend a lot of time critiquing the world out there. It does not take much insight to point out all the things that are wrong with contemporary Christianity. And it's not all that humble to do so either. So my concern is not with critiquing the world out there. My concern is with the people in here. Will we listen to Jesus? And will we count the cost? So we'll just note this, there is no such thing as cheap discipleship, according to Jesus. There's only costly discipleship. And unless we reckon with the cost, we cannot be His disciple. Of course, we've only summarized the passage. You might think that's enough. We've only summarized the passage at this point. We've still got the details to go. Specifically, we need to ask ourselves, what exactly are these costs that Jesus demands we count in order to follow Him? That's where I want to spend the majority of our time this morning. Three times, Jesus says that bracing word, cannot. And from those verses, I'd like us to consider three expressions of costly discipleship. Instead of cheap discipleship that doesn't lead anywhere, let's look at how Jesus defines costly discipleship. The first expression is in verse 26. To follow Jesus, disciples must have no higher allegiance. To follow Jesus, disciples must have no higher allegiance. This verse is perhaps the clearest proof that Jesus intends to be alarming. The language here is nothing less than shocking. Listen again, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, when you read that verse, your first thought is probably that Jesus is using hyperbole. He doesn't literally mean you must hate your family, we think. That's probably your first reaction. And your first reaction would be right. Of course Jesus is speaking in hyperbole at this point. This is the same Jesus who calls His disciples to love their enemies. So He wouldn't follow that up by saying literally despise your family. This is the same Jesus who devoted one of His last breaths on the cross to making sure that His own mother was cared for. Of course he's using hyperbole. But at the same time, while this is hyperbole, there's some reality behind verse 26 that we ought to recognize. Here's what I mean. In Jesus' day, following Christ did often result in alienation. Certainly with friends and also at times with your family. Jesus' day was different than our day then. It did often result in alienation. We think of the apostles, James and John, for example, who left their father to follow Jesus. Do you remember that moment in Mark chapter 1? When Jesus called, James and John left their father in the boat with the hired servants. Imagine how that moment appeared to the people standing around witnessing it. It probably looked like James and John hated their father, didn't it? 
It probably looked like they loved Jesus more than their father. That their allegiance to Jesus was higher than any earthly allegiance. And that, friends, gets to the heart of what Jesus is talking about. In verse 26, when He says a disciple must hate his family, He means a disciple has no higher allegiance. He means that a disciple's devotion is first and foremost to Christ. Even if that devotion to Christ looks like hatred of family to the world. So verse 26 is hyperbole, but it's hyperbole with a bite. It's hyperbole with a real world cost. To follow Jesus, you must have no higher allegiance than Him. This is countercultural, isn't it? It's countercultural. But what's interesting to me is that it's probably not countercultural for our brothers and sisters around the world. They probably understand this verse better than we do. I remember meeting a, a Christian in Burkina Faso. It's a very poor country in West Africa. This was around 2001. And, and this brother had been kicked out of his family's home and village for following Christ. In that part of the world, that's a virtual death sentence. These folks were subsistence farmers. They lived in community in order to survive. So to be kicked out was essentially to be confined to death. It was almost a death sentence. So when this brother's family threatened to kick him out, he had no other choice. If he wanted to be a Christian, he had no other choice. He followed Jesus. He was kicked out of his home. In his view, there was no higher allegiance. I remember hearing how the brother would sleep outside underneath trees, and then he would wake up in the morning to find poisonous snakes coiled up next to him, taking advantage of the body heat. Sleeping outside, scrounging for food, fending off snakes. Who does that? The answer, friends, is a Christian does that. A Christian in Burkina Faso does that. Why? Because to follow Jesus, a disciple has no higher allegiance than him. So practically, how do we put this principle into action? How do we follow this expression of costly discipleship? Well, honestly, there isn't a practical step that you can take that will complete verse 26. I think that's the danger of always looking for the quote-unquote practical action point. We end up missing the point. The point here is not necessarily to look for a series of steps that you can do so that you can cross off verse 26. Rather, the point here is to engage in prayerful self-examination. To ask yourself, is Jesus my first love, my highest allegiance, my deepest devotion? Am I truly ready to count the cost of earthly relationships, even my most precious ones, in order to follow the Lord? The reality is none of us are totally and completely prepared to bear this cost of discipleship. We haven't arrived at a place where we can say, yep, I've got verse 26 done. can check that one off the list. I did that. So self-reflection is always needed. In fact, this is a key aspect of discipleship. To regularly pray for the strength to stand firm in the faith and follow the Lord. It is good and wise to pray for the Holy Spirit to deepen your allegiance to Jesus so that you will be ready to count the cost with Him. And 
That is perhaps my strongest encouragement to us this morning from the entire sermon. Make it a regular feature of your discipleship, both for yourself and for others, to ask God to prepare you to count the cost. Pray for fortitude, in other words. Fortitude of faith, strength for faith, for resolve and for readiness. Because the question is not, will you have to bear the cost? It's just, when will it come? When? So we ought to pray regularly that God would make us ready. That we would have fortitude. Costly discipleship means that we have no higher allegiance than Jesus. By God's grace then, let's seek the Spirit's help to count that cost. The second expression of costly discipleship comes in the next verse, verse 27. To follow Jesus, disciples must embrace the way of the cross. To follow Jesus, disciples must embrace the way of the cross. Jesus follows up the call of verse 26 with an equally bracing call. Listen again, verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Since we know the end of the Gospel story, we tend to read Jesus' reference to the cross in light of what we already know, rather than in light of what it meant in Jesus' day. So just to remind you, the cross in Jesus' day was a means of execution. The cross was a place of shame. The cross was a place where you lost your life, perhaps justly, perhaps unjustly, but you lost it nonetheless. The cross, in other words, was painful. And to hear Jesus make this reference would have been very alarming for this great crowd. But while that context is important, it's not the most important reference that Jesus makes in verse 27. To put it clearly, Jesus does not define the cross in connection with the Romans. Jesus defines the cross in connection with Himself. Notice how the phrases go in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do you see how the phrases flow? We must bear the cross in discipleship, but we bear the cross in order to follow the crucified one, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his cross bearing that defines our cross bearing. Now, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean that Jesus' cross bearing defines our cross bearing? What does that mean? Well, there are several things that we ought to say at this point. First and foremost, Jesus' cross bearing is what makes discipleship a reality. Salvation is a work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, it is not a work that we accomplish by bearing the cross. So this is as good a point as any to remind you that no one is saved by bearing the cross as a disciple. The beginning point of all true discipleship is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. 
By God's grace through the preaching of the Gospel, discipleship begins with repentance and faith as sinners turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone to save them from the wrath of God. That's the starting line for everyone who sets out to follow Jesus. So when we say that Jesus' cross-bearing defines our cross-bearing, we mean at the core that His work, not ours, is what makes discipleship a reality. He saves us. But a second thing we ought to say is that Jesus' cross-bearing does provide the shape for the Christian life. It does provide the shape for the Christian life. What should your expectation be for living as a Christian? That expectation should be shaped by the cross where suffering precedes glory. That's what we see in Jesus' life. His suffering on the cross was the Father's means of bringing the Son to glory. So think about that wonderful passage in Philippians chapter 2. That on the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why will every knee bow? Because Jesus submitted Himself to the will of the Father, endured the cross, and suffered on the place of His people. Suffering precedes glory. That's the shape of the cross for the Christian life. By God's grace, we are bound for glory, but the road to glory runs through suffering. That's what I mean by the Christian life being shaped by the cross. The road to glory runs through suffering. The road to glory is paved with bearing the cross in Jesus' name. This is why the apostles of the New Testament can say really, really shocking things like, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Why should we not be surprised? Because the Christian life is shaped by the cross. Or when James says that we should count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Why are trials reasons for joy? Because the Christian life is shaped by the cross where suffering with Christ leads to glory with Christ. The Christian life is shaped by the cross. To bear the cross then is to endure hardship in allegiance to Christ, but to endure it armed with the hope of glory. In fact, this is a final thing that we ought to say about how Jesus' cross-bearing defines our cross-bearing. According to the author of Hebrews, why did Jesus endure the cross? Do you remember? Such a wonderful passage. Why did Jesus endure the cross? Answer, for the joy that was set before Him. The joy of what? The joy of fulfilling His Father's will. The joy of submitting to His Father's will. The joy of trusting that His Father's will is good and perfect and wise. In short, Jesus believed that the joy of serving the Father was worth more than the shame of suffering. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. And so, Jesus' life of joyful submission to the Father tells us what it means to bear the cross. 
This is key, brothers and sisters. To bear the cross is not simply to suffer as though suffering held some intrinsic value. It doesn't. Neither is bearing the cross a call to seek out suffering as though God's keeping a little tally mark in heaven and you've got to make it up to level 26 in order to get in. No, no, a thousand times no. Rather, to bear the cross is to follow Jesus in trusting the Father even when trusting the Father costs you everything you have. That's how you bear the cross. To submit yourself to God and believe that the joy of trusting Him is worth more than the suffering of the cross in this life. That's bearing the cross. It's to join Jesus, the man of sorrows, on the sorrowful but always rejoicing road to glory. That's bearing the cross. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? I'm not. And I'm sure that you sense in your own soul that you are not as well. Who is sufficient for these things? Oh, how deeply we need to see the glory of our crucified Savior. Like I said last week, the fight of faith is at its core a fight to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Bearing the cross is not something you can do by willpower. It's not something that can be sustained by moral exertion. If you just try harder tomorrow to bear the cross, you'll last like six minutes You can't do it by willpower. Bearing the cross is sustained only by the power of the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Few things fire me up more than when someone says, why do you preach the glory of God? It's not practical. I want to say to those people, then you've never read the Bible. The only way you can live as a Christian is with your eyes open to see that Christ is better than this world. So if your heart is moved in even the slightest way this morning, and I hope that it is, if your soul is stirred even a little to bear the cross with Jesus, then the first thing that you ought to do is not run out and look for all the hard stuff that you can accomplish to prove your commitment. The first thing that you ought to do, that I ought to do, is to fall on your face and plead with God for eyes to see Jesus. That's the only way you'll make it to the end. Who is sufficient for these things? None of us. So may Christ come and give us what we need to embrace the way of the cross as His disciples. To follow Jesus, disciples must embrace the way of the cross. That's the second expression. The third expression of costly discipleship comes at the end of the passage. Verse 33. Jesus uses those two illustrations that we noted earlier in verses 28 to 32. Both illustrations picture the necessity of counting the costs. It's foolish to start what you can't finish, and it's better to make peace than to get beat. So those illustrations are urging us that counting the costs is wise and necessary, and that leads into this third expression, verse 33. To follow Jesus, disciples must forsake earthly security. To follow Jesus... Disciples must forsake earthly security. The pattern of very bracing language keeps going. Listen again to Jesus, verse 33. 
So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In a sense, friends, this is the culmination of Jesus' teaching on discipleship, at least in this passage. All that we have in this world, we renounce for the sake of following Christ. That's verse 33. Now, in the history of the church, some people have taken this passage to mean that discipleship requires some kind of intentional poverty, maybe even a vow of poverty. To be a Christian, you have to purposefully choose to live a meager life. Is that what Jesus means here? Not necessarily. I'll contend that Jesus is making a deeper point than simply measuring your net worth. Jesus is talking about where you find your security, where you place your confidence. If Jesus was merely saying you have to be poor to be a Christian, that actually lowers the standard. I'm saying that Jesus is saying something much higher. Where are you placing your confidence? Where are you finding your security? Remember, friends, the human heart is a battlefield of trust. Do you know that? Every day, there's a war taking place in your heart, and it's a war for trust. It's a war for faith. Because we're made in God's image, we're designed to place our confidence in something. We're not designed to be self-sufficient beings. We are hardwired to seek security outside of ourselves. And for many people, that desire for security ends up focused on earthly possessions, on worldly attachments. If I just have the right kind of job, then my future will be secure. If I live in the right neighborhood, then my family will be safe. If I acquire enough things, then that restless craving in my soul to get more stuff will be satisfied. I'll be happy. And to be sure, there's nothing inherently sinful in preparing for the future. You ought to do that. There's nothing sinful or dishonoring the Lord in protecting your family. You ought to do that. But the reality is that without vigilance, our pursuit of those earthly securities can easily replace the Lord as the source of our confidence. Instead of anchoring our hope for the future in Christ, we anchor it in our bank balance or in our zip code. Again, the number is not the issue. You can commit idolatry if you have $12 or $12 million. Idolatry is an equal opportunity sin. It doesn't matter what your bank balance is. The number is not the issue. Trust is the issue. Hope is the issue. What are you hoping in? Where does your security lie? Where does your confidence rest? In your possessions or in the Lord who conquered death? So, when Jesus calls His disciples to renounce everything, he's actually saying something much deeper than simply live a meager life. He's saying forsake finding your security in the things of this world. Root your confidence in the Father, in His provision, and in His character. And in that sense, this is the culminating call of costly discipleship. This is like a pinnacle point. Think about it. What is a frequent rival for our allegiance to Christ? Stuff. Possessions. Things. What's a consistent hindrance to embracing the way of the cross? Comfort. Leisure. Ease. 
Those are frequent hindrances. At the end of the day, discipleship is costly. And Jesus is saying the only way you endure that cost is by renouncing earthly security and entrusting yourself to the Father's care. So just like with the first point, there's not a neat series of steps you can take to follow verse 33. There's not a one, two, three that I can tell you to do. Instead, you have to engage in the lifelong, heart-level fight for faith in Christ. Each day, I bow my knee once more to the Lordship of Christ. Not because I need to get saved time and time again, but because the cost is always there to be counted. You don't count it one time, you count it every day. It's not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong thing. And it's called discipleship. Being a Christian. The fight for faith. Indeed, this is why Jesus ends the passage where He does. Notice the proverb that Jesus uses in verses 34 and 35. It probably seems a little random to you, like it's just stuck on the end of the passage here. But it's a simple image about the necessity of counting the cost. Look at what Jesus says. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What good is non-salty salt? It's not any good. It's useless. In the same way, disciples who don't count the cost lose the saltiness of their testimony in Christ. They run out of gas, as one commentator put it. But notice the last line where Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is Jesus' reminder to everyone who sets out to follow Him. By God's grace, those who have ears to hear bear fruit. They stay salty. They bear the cost and follow the Lord. But the point that I'm trying to emphasize to you is that the hearing in verse 35, he who has ears to hear, that hearing is not a one-time thing. It's ongoing. Each day we ask God for the ears to hear the call of Christ and His Word. Each day we plead with the Spirit to renew our faith, strengthen our resolve, and keep us trusting in Christ. Not a one-time thing. It's an everyday thing, and it's called discipleship. And that means a fitting way to end our exposition is by simply asking, are you hearing the Word of Christ with faith today? That is a good question for Christians to ask one another. How is your hearing? How are you hearing the Word of God? Are you counting the cost and entrusting yourself to the Savior? How are you hearing the Word of Christ today? If you're not a Christian this morning, then the response for you is to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. The Lord demands your life. If you're not a Christian this morning, I hope that's one thing that really jumps off the page at you is that Jesus really is the Lord of all the earth. He demands your life. And there's a cost to follow Him. And that cost is high. But you know what? The cost of not following Him is even greater. It's the cost of bearing your own sin and your own shame all the way into eternity. So if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, 
hear the good news of the gospel, count the cost by grace and by faith, entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said at the outset, discipleship is not an offer that man makes to Christ. Jesus sets the terms, friends. And His terms are really clear. No higher allegiance. Embrace the way of the cross. Forsake earthly security. I take great comfort in the fact that even the apostles grew in their costly discipleship. I take great, com- great comfort from someone like Peter. On the night of Jesus' trial, it sure didn't look like Peter was ready to count the cost, did it? He denied the Lord three times. And yet, in the end, what did Peter find? He found that Christ's grace was enough even for foolish disciples who don't always count the cost as they should. And perhaps that's the best place to end this passage with the reminder that Christ forgives sinners. He even forgives weak-willed disciples like us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray for the grace today to hear the Word of God with ears of faith. We pray for eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in our hearts, in our homes, and in the life of our church. Father, we confess that left to ourselves, we both cannot and we would not bear the cost of discipleship. And yet we hear the words of our Lord very clearly telling us that we must count the cost to follow Him. And so we ask, Father, that You would give us the grace to obey what You command. We pray, pray, Father, that You would help us by Your Holy Spirit to follow in the way that You tell us we must go. Help us, God. Help us. Lord, protect us today from concluding as after we've listened to this passage, protect us from concluding that the answer is just more of our own willpower and moral exertion. Lead us, Father, to the humility of prayer. Lead us, Father, to the humility of asking for what we need. And we pray, Lord, we pray that You would sustain us on the road to glory as we follow the man of sorrows, the Lord Jesus Himself, bearing the cross and trusting that His work is enough. We pray in His name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.